Okay. The Bible reading this morning is from Philippians 1.27 to chapter 2, verse 10. So, ah, 11. <laughs> uh, Philippians 1.27, we're starting at. So the through to 2.11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Caitlin. And it'd be really helpful to keep your Bible open here uh, at Philippians 1 and 2. Uh, If you've been away for a little while, you may have missed, but we are working our way through uh, this letter that Paul Uh, wrote to the Philippian church uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, He wrote to them in their struggles from his own struggles, and he is writing to them to encourage them to keep going in the faith. And uh, if there's something that you and I need, our church need, it's encouragement to keep going in the faith, isn't it? Uh, To be spurred on, and that's why uh, this book is such an appropriate one. Uh, There were some sermon outlines handed out on your way in. Uh, There's a kids one, and then there's a grown-up one. Uh, That might help you follow along. There's also some questions at the bottom of the grown-ups one uh, for maybe you to consider later or for you to do in your growth group throughout the week. Before we dive in, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that we have this opportunity now uh, to have your word open in front of us, uh, to hear you speak to us. Through your word, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are the speaking Lord. Uh, Please give us listening ears and hearts that we might be spurred on, encouraged uh, as we follow the Lord Jesus. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever noticed how uh, times of adversity uh, can really act to bring people together. Uh, going through a difficult time uh, can have this impact of unifying a a, a group of people. 
Uh, now, we've just come through the, the global pandemic, and, and most of us have pretty fresh in our mind uh, the latter days of the pandemic, where we experienced a lot of division. Uh, we disagreed across our country on things like vaccines and lockdowns and mandates, but we forget pretty quickly the early days when the pandemic actually had this effect of bringing people together. We were united in our approach. We were united in encouraging one another to do the right thing. It, it really brought people together. On Friday, we, we, we got that news, didn't we, of uh, the passing of our queen. And I don't know about you, but I found it quite interesting to see uh, the, the array of people who have spoken out positively about her. Uh, people have sort of been united in their sadness and their recognition that we've, we've lost someone great and influential in our world. Tough times, suffering, opposition can, can have this impact of, of actually drawing people together. Well, in this passage that we're considering this morning, we, we really have uh, those themes of suffering and unity uh, brought to the fore. We have a connection between opposition and hardship and unity in the church, but it's done in a very particular kind of way. Now, you may remember last week, if you were around, we had a look at the section before this where Paul spelled out some of his own current experiences, where he spelled out this principle going on in his life that goes on in every Christian life of the suffering road to glory. And here we learn a little bit more about the suffering and the struggles that the Philippians are experiencing. Uh, Paul writes to them, if you have a look there in verse 29, that for the sake of Christ, they not only should believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake. They are facing opponents, two types in particular. Uh, one, Paul says that, that they are experiencing the same things that he experienced with them. And if you think, cast your mind back to, to Acts 16, that was actually an imprisonment. Uh, Paul, after, after healing a, a girl with an evil spirit, uh, he was arrested falsely, uh, beaten and imprisoned for a night. He says, you, you, you're sharing the same conflict that you saw I had. Well, this probably means that they too are being opposed by their government, their, their magistrates, for their faith in Christ. But not only that, they are also experiencing opposition to the gospel message itself. A little later on in the book, we're going to read about some of the opponents that they're facing, the false teachers and the false teachings who want to add something to the gospel. They want to add an act of righteousness to that which is already given by Christ, which is, is not a free gift at all then. that They're perverting the gospel. And so this Philippian church is facing these, these two types of opponents, one from the outside and one from within the church. And they're suffering under that. It's hard to be a Christian. And so Paul, Paul writes to them and he says, in the midst of that opposition, you church, you, you, you need to stand together. You need to be united in Christ, united in the gospel. If you want to stand against all of these, these threats, 
Uh, you need to be a people where there are no cracks. That, that are loving one another and united in the Lord Jesus. So we want to we think about that this morning from this passage. And we want to note three things in particular that comes out of it. And we're going to look at where our unity comes from. We're going to look at what, what's it actually based on. We're going to look at uh, what it's for, the purpose of our being united. And then we're going to have a look at the shape, the way it expresses itself in the life of the church. So we're going to start there by looking at where our unity comes from. And this, this is really important. Because so often groups of people uh, get together because they have something in common. Uh, maybe, maybe groups of people get together because they are uh, blood relatives. You know, kind of that family gathering that, that people have. Or people get together because they're at a common stage of life. Uh, young parents with, with kids will, will sort of hang out together. Or they have a shared history or background or, or some sort of common interest. Quite often, unity in groups uh, means that there is very little diversity because people hold stuff in common. But, but unity in the church is very different. Because if we look around this morning, this is, not a, this is quite a diverse group of people, isn't it? Even from the outside, you know, different age groups, uh, different backgrounds, uh, different cultures that we come from. And once we start to get to know each other, we, we, learn we, have, we have different preferences, maybe different political views. There's lots of diversity going on in the church. So unity can't be based on the fact that we all like the same things. But that's good because it's not. <laughs> when Paul urges the church to unity, he, he urges the church to a unity that is founded in the gospel itself. It's the good news of Jesus that brings and keeps people together. Two aspects of this I want to, I want to notice here. The, the first one is that the unity is found in the gospel message. It's found in, in the common belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. I want to notice just two, two little phrases here. It sort of mentions this twice, this this idea of being of the same mind, it's there in verse 27. Uh, if you have a look there at the bottom part of it, uh, he says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, he says, having something in common. And then again in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He wants them thinking similarly about something. Well, what would that be? Well, it's, he wants them to be of the same mind when it comes to the gospel. You see, when the opposition comes with threats to the gospel message, it's, a, it's essential, isn't it, that, that, that the church is clear and united on what the gospel is. It can't be vague or ambiguous because, because that's an opportunity for division. And so Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, I, I want you to be of the same mind in this. The good news of Jesus Christ. Who he is, his, his coming, his, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his reigning, his returning. You be of the same mind in these things. And that's a more powerful unity than any shared history or any common political views or any age group gathering together. 
this gospel unites people. Now, unfortunately, we've developed a somewhat cynical view uh, about doctrine. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, Jesus unites, but doctrine divides. <laughs> it's the idea that like, if, we, if we, we get serious about the truth of God's word, it's just going to cause fights. We're going to disagree uh, with each other. And sure, there are, there are cases of that happening, but that should not be the case, should it? Sharing our understanding of the Lord Jesus, studying his word, actually unites his church together. It's one of the reasons why, if you look through church history, there were creeds and confessions that were written and agreed upon. Because they said, we don't want to fight about these things. This is what we believe together. This is what unites us, our faith in the Lord Jesus, understanding who he is by these words. That's what, why we remain to be, remain a confessional church at South Bowen, part, South part of the, the Christian Reformed Church of Australia is a confessional church because we say this unites us. We, we believe these things together. We stand together on these truths. But then there's a second aspect of this unity in the gospel I want to just notice. And it's not just our understanding of the gospel that unites us. It's actually our experience of the gospel together as well. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1, and look at the, the way that this is written. Paul's about to go on. We'll, we'll look at this in a moment. And he's about to encourage oneness of, of mind and love. Uh, he's, he's going to encourage us to, to serve one another and be humble with one another. But this is what he bases it on. He says, so if there is. Now, you know, you know sometimes so someone, people use this if clause, like, if you're hungry, there's ice cream in the freezer. I mean, like, who says that? But, you know, you know, it's like, if you're hungry, and you might not be, you know, you can go and get ice cream from the freezer. But then other times people use if clauses, an if statement. It's like, you know, it definitely is. Like, if you're not stupid, you know, imply I'm not stupid, so that this has got to be true of me. Or, or if you're alive, or if you're breathing. Well, this is in the second part of that. This is not a, hey, you might have experienced this. This is a, hey, if you're a Christian, uh, you have experienced these things. What are they? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus and you've been spurred on in your faith, if there is any comfort from love, if, if the love of Jesus has been a comfort in your life, in your hardship, in your struggles, in your suffering, if you've been comforted by his love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, or, or another translation would have fellowship in the Spirit, if you have fellowship, a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's alive and at work in your life, and if you have any affection and sympathy, if you, in knowing Christ, have experienced His love, His affection, His concern, His sympathy for you. And now, now as Paul's saying, well, you know, you might have got two out of three as a Christian. No, he's saying, if you have, and you have, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you have fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. You have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort in love. You have affection and sympathy. What's he saying? You have everything you need in the Lord Jesus. 
to be a church that is united in the gospel. You have been given all that is required through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see what this verse is getting at? You have everything that you need to stand together in the gospel. Striving side by side in unity. It's a, this, is what, this is what we have in the gospel in the Lord Jesus. This is the basis for our unity. And so we might, we might come from very different walks of life. And we might have very different ideas on how to send our kids, what, what to do with our kids' schooling, or political views, or many other things. But we have something that binds us together that is greater than all of those differences. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In that we stand together. In that experience of Christ, we have everything that we need for unity. And there's also a clue here as to how unity is going to be strengthened in the church, isn't it? Isn't there? It's going to be built and strengthened as we sit under the word of God together, as we consider Christ together and we experience his work in our lives as well. All right, let's move on. That's the foundation of unity. We want to move on to its purpose then. Unity is found in the gospel, but it's also for the sake of the gospel. We're unified in Christ for the sake of the gospel in our world. I want to go through verses 27 and 28 for a minute. Just just have a look at what it says, how he starts here. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that's a very broad statement. You know, that, that, that could include anything and everything. He wants our lives to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whenever, whenever I come and see you or I'm absent, and this is, this is what he's really getting at, a life worthy. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Notice what he's saying here? I, I, I want you united and of one mind so that you can stand firm together against the opposition that faces you. Whether that be opposition that comes from without, whether it be opposition that arises within, I want you to be united so you can stand against it. Now, there's two terms in, in, that Paul uses in here which are from particular uh, areas of, of ancient life. The first one is that, that word standing firm, or those words standing firm. And this actually comes from a military term. And it's got to do with, with, with soldiers lined up together with, with an army coming towards them. And it's got this idea that, that, that the church is lined up together resisting the opposition that's coming. He's saying, we, we don't want to crack in that line, do we? We don't, we don't want someone falling back. We want to stand opposed to what is against us, us together. The second term I want to just note is, is, is the idea of striving side by side. And that's really, it comes from a term that is used in ancient athletics, of, of an athletics team spurring one another on, uh, encouraging each other. 
uh, motivating each other to, to do better and to do well. And so Paul's got in mind this, this idea of church united so that we are encouraged to press on in the faith, to press on in the gospel. Why does the church stand together? Why does it strive? It's so that we will not be afraid in the face of opposition. We will not be tempted to water down the gospel or to give up on following the Lord Jesus when it gets tough, when it gets hard. But this is not just about defense. It's actually about offense as well. Look at how verse 28 continues. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The church united in the face of opposition is a sign to the opponents actually of their destruction. It's a sign, whether or not they're willing to see it or not, that they are on the side of evil and wrong, and the church is protected by the truth and protected by God. When the, when the church fails to wilter and fail and be divided under opposition, it's a sign that says God is with them. And so Paul also says to us that this is then also a sign of our salvation and that from God. God actually affirms our faith in him through the unity of the church standing together. Now, unity can be really hard. We're going to get to that. In a moment, we're going, to, we're going to talk about the shape, the way that unity plays out. Unity is a wonderful experience, but it's also very costly. And because it's costly, our motives for it actually really count. You see, the, the spirit of our age, and we're all, we're all influenced by this, is very self-focused, isn't it? I do things for what I'm going to get out of it. I'll strive for unity because it's a better experience of church and community for me. It's true, isn't it? You know, no one wants to be part of a disunified church. We all want to be part of a unified church. That's, that's much more fun. That's, that, that's much better. But what happens when that unity costs us more than it benefits us? What, what, what happens if, if forgiving people and loving people who are hard and serving people requires more in than we actually get out? If we're simply motivated by a church experience, we'll be like, well, why do I bother? I'm not, I'm not benefiting out of this. Well, Paul says there's actually something much more important to do this for. It's for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. It's so that together you stand firm and strive so that the gospel will be defended and actually the gospel will be advanced in the lives of others, in the lives of the world around us. In chapter 2, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, uh, Paul then urges the church to unity, he says, in a twisted and crooked generation in which we shine like lights in the world. Uh, unity says something to a twisted and crooked world uh, about Jesus and about what he's done. 
All right, finally then, what, is, what does this unity look like? What shape does it taste? We've already seen some of this. It, it looks like a common understanding of the gospel and a, agreeing with each other. It looks like a shared experience of Jesus and his work in his life here, but there's more. It, it is unity that is shaped by the gospel itself. It's unity that takes on the flavor and the clothing of the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. I want to draw your attention down to, to chapter 2. And uh, just very briefly, look at verses 2 uh, through to 4. Here is where Paul sort of then gives the instructions on how unity is maintained uh, in the church. He says, uh, being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord and of, of, of one mind, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. This outward-looking life that, that, that thinks about and places the needs of others before our own. But then look at what he says in verse 5. Have this in mind yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who? And then for the next five verses, he runs through this wonderful description of the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. It talks about his humiliation, his emptying of himself and coming to be made like one of us and his suffering and his death and his exaltation raised up by God to the place of authority and praise and worship. Now, this is a wonderful passage, and what we're actually going to do is we're going to come back to this next week, and we're going, to, we're going to think about it a little bit further because it's packed full, and it's rich in our in understanding about who the Lord Jesus is and, and what he's done and what he's doing. But want to notice this for now. Notice what he did for us what he emptied himself of, what he left behind, what he took on for us, what he went to in his death. He did this so that we might be drawn close to himself, so that we might be saved. His was the suffering road to glory, the giving of himself. And Paul says, have amongst yourselves this mind. This is to be your attitude as you seek to love and serve one another. Have the same mind, have the same love, be of, be of one accord, church, he says. Don't be motivated by yourself, by your, by your selfishness, by your conceitedness. Actually think about others. Be, be humble in your thoughts about yourself but, and think about the needs of others. Don't, don't just spend your church life thinking about what you can get out of it and, and just coming along to consume stuff. Think about the needs of other people. You see, unity is a wonderful blessing, isn't it? It's a, it's a blessing given to us by God, but it's costly. It was costly for the Lord Jesus, and it's costly for his followers as well. It's, it, it's costly to love people sacrificially. It's costly to put our own needs off to the side. It's costly to consider others 
better than ourselves. But yet that's what the Lord Jesus kind of did for us. It's what he now calls us to do for each other. It shapes the way we think about ourselves in the life of the church, doesn't it? That I'm not the center of everything. I'm not here for myself. (laughs) Maybe I'm actually here for others. It shapes the way we think about other people, doesn't it? They just don't happen. They're not just a random collection of people that God lumped me with for this period of my life or until eternity. It's actually people that God placed in our lives uh, to love and to serve. And it shapes the way we treat one another, doesn't it, then as well? Uh, Sacrificially serving each other in the shape of Christ. Denial of ourselves for the sake of others. Serving people. Uh, praying for people. Uh, investing into the lives of each other. But it's worth it, isn't it? It's hard, but it's worth it. Because it's for the sake of Christ. And it's for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for all that we've been given in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Thank you for uh, his wonderful sacrifice, his his deep love and affection for us, uh, his concern for us that took took him to the cross um, so that we might be brought near, we might be saved, and that we might also be brought to one another. Lord God, help us not to see help us to see our unity not as a not as an add-on extra, uh, not as just a side benefit, but to absolutely core to who we are in Christ. Help us to stand firm together in the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Lord, take away pride and selfishness uh, from our lives and give us uh, love and humility towards each other. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.